Miles, welcome uh, to uh, Time Team from Bournemouth University or wherever your back bedroom is um, at the moment. <laughs> I've, I've moved downstairs now. So oh, you moved downstairs. <laughs> oh, very nice. Very, very nice. Um, it's very nice to have you along. And, and I wanted to ask you some critical questions. We're drawing nearer to the possibility of excavating this 18-metre-long Roman villa. Um, and I suppose one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, if this was a site you were about to go into, where would you start? But more importantly, what would you be hoping to get out of it? In other words, if there's a chance, I remember Guy saying, this is one of my interminably long questions, I'm afraid. It's my, I've yeah. worked myself up and get going. There you go ahead. I remember Guy de la Bedouillere said at some point, he said, we're never going to find any new Roman history books or any new documents. We pretty much think we've got them. So finding new stuff about the Romans is going to come from archaeology. So if we ha if you had a shot at an 80 metre long Roman villa in Oxfordshire, what would you be hoping to get out of it over maybe a number of years of seasons of work and things like that? I mean, I think the, the key thing, really, um, archaeologically speaking, is with a lot of villas is that we know where they spent their money. You know, we can see the mosaics and the wall plaster and everything, uh, but we can't see how they made their money. Um, and all the antiquarian excavations from about the 1800s up until the, the mid 20th century have always focused on the big house uh, and nice though the big house is. Uh, and I think it's always important to put a trench across the big house to see how well it is preserved because mosaics are, you know, unique pieces of art, but in the bigger picture, um, it's the farmyards, it's the areas uh, beyond the villa that really need uh, examination. Because, I mean, although every single villa is unique, you know, it's not like a fort whereby it, it's the Roman state building the same thing again and again and again and again across the landscape. Villas develop over time and they evolve and they change. Um, so it's, you know, everyone is is different, but I think you know, usually with a with a geophysical survey and, and with a good understanding, you can see the area that's often enclosed around the villa, the, the farmyard area. And the thing about the Romans were they, they liked to show off where their money came from. You know, from the limited number of villas that have been excavated beyond the main house. You often, as you approach it, you would go through the farmyard, you'd have pigsties, you've had cattle sheds and so on. You know, whereas a, perhaps a, a, an 18th century stately home, they would hide all that. You know, you, you'd bulldoze the peasant village <laughs> and you'd sort of landscape the area around. But Romans, as far as we can see, like to show off, here's where I made my money and here's where I spent it. And we found so many examples of where they spent it. Uh, but it, it's the it's the outer areas. You know, are they generating money through rearing cattle? Uh, have they got sheep pens? Have they got some other kind of industrial or agricultural complex around the, the big house? And so, I suppose the other alternative, Miles, is that this this family made their money from, say, pottery production uh, from the Oxford pottery wares or from working in Sirencester. I mean, it's 40 miles away, I think Helen told me. And um, but were, were they working in the administration? Were they making their money from taxation and and being a, a core part of the local administration? Absolutely. Yeah. So you might well find evidence, you know, of, of that sort of uh, industrial activity uh, around the villa. 
So it's, it's that area. But beyond that as well, I mean, it depends how big a survey you can do. And obviously, the, the bigger, the better, because early surveys were, again, just focused on the big house. So often when you, when you get a plan of a villa, you can say, even without digging it, you can say, there's the dining room, there's the bath block, there's, uh, other, there's the corridor. You can see how it all fits together. Um, but what we don't often get is also the burial ground, the mausoleum, the, the, the temple, because we don't know who lived in those big sort of houses um, because the, the burial grounds often set a long way off, sometimes, you know, on the main approach to, to the villa. So if you could find a, the burial ground of a temple, that is also adding massive amount of information. And, that you know, the, the, the temple might give us some kind of clue to the ethnicity of the owner because there's no guarantee that the person living in a Romano-British villa is actually of Romano-British origin. They could come from anywhere in the Roman Empire uh, mm. and, and settling here. So, you know, that is another aspect, I think, that, that has, tends to be overlooked. And we know but, that we have got a sarcophagus from there. Excellent. <laughs> and that was found, it was the original reason, I think, the combination of that early sarcophagus find and then some work by um, a, a, a local... Um, archaeologist who took an interest in the site um, and that's what um, that sort of combination of the sarcophagus and the work that um, Keith did uh, who we're working with the metal he's a metal detectorist he's also a local archaeologist um, that was very important to locating the site Excellent. I mean, often you do get isolated sarcophagus remains because they've been reused. They sometimes get reused as, as cattle troughs or get reused in, in building. But if you can locate whereabouts that, that came from, I mean, that'd be fantastic. But to find the burial ground of the owners who lived in the villa, that would be a, a major discovery, you know, for, for Roman Britain, because we just so much has been focused on the on the house uh, and not on the surrounding area. So, you know, that would, I think, be a, a major priority. And during field walking, I think they did find tessera. Um, they also found about 60 coins from a range of Roman emperors. And we're hoping to get um, Richard Rees to have a look at those for us. Um, and I'm thinking of the early work we did with David Neal on mosaics. Um, and I remember David saying to me, I saw mosaics 20 years ago made a sketch of them in the field and they're no longer there you know because you know it's there it might be bad weather climate change soil conditions some farming situation occurs and and a, a mosaic isn't necessarily going to be secure just because it's four or five inches below the soil no, not at all. And of course, again, uh, mosaics are, are, are vitally important, really, because they're such a fragile art resource. Uh, every mosaic is is unique. Um, and it's not like, you know, when you're mixing up bits of a jigsaw puzzle and you've got the image on the on the box, so you know what should be there. When the mosaic tessera come up, the image is is going. And that also gives us so much of an idea of not just the artistic traditions of Roman Britain, but the the uh, the kind of myths that the owner liked because you're often in their dining room area what's there on the floor tells you more about them than anything else in in the house and of course plowing we, we tend not to think of plowing uh, agriculture as 
destruction as development. You know, it's not like a housing estate or a road. It's obviously destructive, but ploughing takes a couple of centimetres off every year. It goes down and down. And the, the destruction wrought upon mosaics is just terrific. So if you've got Tessa on the surface, yeah, obviously that, that suggests that the mosaic has been disturbed but it would be a, a priority to, to try and identify. I mean, you need to know, obviously, how it is surviving. Is it surviving? And any kind of idea of the artistic elements of it, because, you know, a lot of sites in the field, although you think they are preserved, they're not being destroyed. Ploughing is taking them apart bit by bit. Yeah, and, and I remember, too, when we had Dinnington, uh, we had some bits of shattered tessera around, and it was almost like a rescue dig. By working in those areas, we eventually found one piece of the pattern, which I think had a gouache design, David Neal called it, one of those sort of coiled rope-looking designs. Yes, it was sort of guillotine, yeah, this interlink guilloche. interlinking, yeah. Yeah, and because we found a piece of it, he was able to extrapolate from that to, to, to a bigger picture. And I think there was a, there was a couple of images in there which were part of a myth he was able to reconstruct. So from a fragment of the mosaic, we were able to create the bigger picture. Um, and it, in a, I think it was almost, you know, we could have said, OK, that mosaic is, has probably been destroyed. We'll move on to something else. But by persisting in that area, and, uh, and in one sense, you're almost part of a rescue dig, aren't you, on a villa like this? If if it's if natural earth movement farming back in the day has has done some damage already, we may be looking at the final remnants of the clue to that person because you know he would have had a large mosaic possibly in is it the triclinium, the sort of big dining room, the meeting hall. It is, yeah, the, the, the triclinium. And the triclinium is usually the, the most obvious bit in the villa because it's usually the largest room and it sometimes has an apse at the end because that's where everyone sits uh, and, and eats stuffed dormice and, and, you know, gossips about the emperor. Um, but and but the rest of the, the room in front of that will have a whole series of designs uh, for the slaves or for entertainment. And what's in that floor, again, tells you about the literary and artistic tastes of the owner. Most of the mosaics in the triclinium often relate to Bacchus and drinking and sort of orgies and that kind of entertainment because that's what the owner, you know, wants his guests to, to be relaxed and, and, and to get drunk and to be, be entertained. But the, the sorts of uh, scenes from mythology that are in that, uh, you know, that is the, gives you a key to unlocking the mind of the owner. And I wanted to sort of also ask you about the relationship between the owner, about we know absolutely nothing at the moment. You know, he's a completely a blank slate, him and his family. Um, we could estimate how many people would have occupied a villa of this size. I think it's probably North North Lee is Lee, Lee is probably the nearest one. How many people can you imagine being inside a villa like this? It, that, that's the great unknown, really, isn't it? That's the, that's the question we all like to answer. I mean, usually a villa, we'd expect a family. Uh, it might be two families. Sometimes villas have two bathing suites attached to them. Um, and there's some debate as to whether one might be the family and one might be for visitors. But it could be you've got two families who've inherited an, an estate and they're both living in the same sort of block. But often with villas, you get that, that three sides of a square with domestic ranges in. Um, but they would be attended by servants and or slaves. Um, 
with the Roman villas in Britain, of course, we don't get a second floor surviving. We just got the ground level. And it could be that servants and slaves lived in the attic space or lived upstairs, which we don't get surviving. So we'd probably expect in a, in a, you know, a normal sized villa, you've probably got somewhere between 20 and 30 people living within that, that sort of space. The key is always is going to be whether it, it's continually occupied because we know by historical analogy, some big estate owners have got five or six villas and they travel between them. And the, the one bit of the estate that's permanently occupied is sort of an ancillary building where the estate manager, the farm manager may live in slightly less well-appointed accommodation. Uh, and the villa might just be swept clean and the baths heated up for when the owner and his or her family arrive. You know, that might only be once or twice a year. So you might have a strange situation where the big house is empty for large blocks of the time, but only the building next door to it is permanently occupied. So, you know, it, you might only be talking about 20 or 30 people at any one time in, in that kind of space. And it is often a vast space. And I do remember when we when we did um, some work on a hypercost, just what it required to keep a hypercost and a hot bath going. You're talking about uh, presumably slaves or workers who were having to chop down a considerable amount of wood to heat up the furnaces, to warm the floors, the walls, the water. And I and one of the things I we were, we've been thinking about is the whole water system that I guess as a Roman in a villa like that, you would expect to have a bathhouse, um, running water through lead pipes, which was a Roman invention, a decent toilet block. I mean, water's critical, isn't it, really? It is, it is. And of course, the one thing about having your own private bathhouse, you know, every town's got a, a public bath system, but you can't control who can access that. So uh, we will have everyone from different levels of society in there. And as far as we can see, most Roman baths don't have plugs. So they might have just been empty with people by but, uh, you know, buckets emptying that. So you might end up in the public baths whereby it's like a, a human soup of horrific water. In your own baths, you can, you can regulate who's using it. It can be relatively clean. The, the, the plunge bath might be quite small. But, yeah, you absolutely need a, a lot of water to facilitate that. And you're right about the hypercourse because experimental archaeology has shown just how long it takes to ignite and to heat and to keep those floors, um, you know, warm. And not every floor would have been in the villa would have had that. But certainly those like the main office and those in the warm rooms and the hot room in the bathhouse would need that. So a lot of servants facilitating that and you say cutting down trees and just keeping it burning and keeping it regulated. And I'm, I'm interested to think about, I, I, I don't know if, if my memory is right about this, but I've got a feeling that we had at least three of the great Roman emperors decided to visit Britain, this sort of backwoods um, uh, part of the, uh, of the empire. Um, and I wonder what the relationship was between um, the, the family who owned this villa, these rich villa owners. Would they be of conscious of the emperor would they have been automatically saying prayers to the emperor um what sort of relationship did an average roman have with the big guy at the top whose head keeps appearing on the coins all the time well it, exactly i mean you would see the the head on the coins um and uh, you so you'd be reasonably aware of who was in charge um Towards the end of the empire, we're seeing, uh, again, there's historical records of people who own villas in Britain and France and Spain and Greece. So they move, they're, they're the big movers and shakers of the empire. 
they would know who was in charge uh, and they would probably be sort of up to their necks in sort of bribery and, and corruption just to stay, you know, in, in that kind of position. But if you're living in a villa, uh, however small it is, you're part of that Roman system. You understand the policy, even if you're just a, a local town councillor, you know, in nearby Sirencester or, or, or wherever, um, you understand the system of government. You know that the governor is appointed by the emperor. So thereby you have got a connection to to the big man and to the big family back in Rome. So you know, even a, an obscure part of the empire like uh, like this, like in Oxfordshire, you would know the system and you'd be part of it. Um, and you want to get noticed and you want to to rise, but you don't want to get noticed so much that somebody sort of uh, executes you on a trumped up charge and takes control of your villa. So it, it's a precarious game. Being rich and powerful in the Roman Empire is dangerous, and it all depends on your relationship to the guy at the top. And there we have our villa in between some of the major routes of Rome and Britain. Um, you've got the, you know, it's virtually a triangulation of, of, of Roman roads around it. And when I think of roads, um, I also think of taxation um, because the Romans were quite keen on taxation and very efficient at it. They were appointed people who had the skills and that must have produced loads of money. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I mean, obviously, if you're in a villa, you're a Roman citizen. Uh, and although you're protected by the law, you have to pay um, a tax. And really, from the time of Constantine, uh, at the beginning of the fourth century, they are doing audits all the way around the empire. They're working out who owns what land, how much land they own, therefore how much tax they have to pay. So the Romans, the Roman bureaucratic system was was uh, incredibly detailed and complicated. But certainly the, the wealthy, I mean, that's one of the big complaints we hear about the, the Roman wealthy in the fifth centuries is they want to leave the empire because they feel they're paying far too much tax. They're paying for to subsidise barbarians in other parts of the world. They're paying to prop up the frontier. Uh, they're paying for costly foreign wars. And they'd rather the money just stayed at home. But uh, but yeah, they, the, the tax collecting system in the Roman Empire, I think far outstrips any kind of system we've got today. It was horrifically organised and arguably very unfair. But uh, there you go. That, that's part of being Roman. And, and unlike, um, some, you know, the kind of systems we have in the Norman period where there's an attempt to get the record, everybody and what they own, we don't particularly have any documents like that from the Roman period, or do we? Do we have some sort of idea of how that system worked and how they knew what had to be paid? Yeah, we, we don't really have um, the, the system surviving that. There are the certain parts of the Eastern Mediterranean where we do get fragmentary records from the 6th and 7th centuries. Uh, but we know that, that really the, the emperor, certainly Constantine, had a detailed record of, of how many people owned what blocks of land. It'd be fantastic if that resource survived. I mean, we've got lots of li- nice late military documents that gives us names of forts and garrisons and so on, like the Natitia Dignitatum. Uh, but we don't have the equivalent civilian record that's the way. It probably wasn't that interesting for people, you know, it's, it's not full of military insignia and badges and so on. So it wasn't copied into the medieval era. But we do know that, that such records did exist because they wanted to have an accurate idea of where the big landowners were so they could really hit them hard uh, for, for taxation purposes. And it's, it's always a question I feel, you know, I, I'd like an answer to is what, quite why they bothered with Britain. And one explanation I've, I've, you know, read is that in, in a sense, all the Roman emperors wanted a victory. They wanted to 
crush, annihilate the forces of a distant power so that they would have a victory celebration back in Rome. And, and maybe Britain was regarded as, as that. But what on earth made them come into Britain and then head towards Scotland, for goodness sake, building walls and hanging the empire out in the far north? I think I think the thing is you're right that the the uh, the late republic and the early empire leaders needed a military victory and certainly crushing barbarians is one of the main you know got this big fear about the barbarian north and the the, the threat to civilization and Britain is that fantastic goal because it's the other side of the ocean uh, so actually crossing the English Channel or the ocean to the Romans is is a is a major achievement and Julius Caesar tried it twice and got great political capital out of it but he didn't achieve a lasting conquest. So when Claudius comes to the scene, it is the ideal target because to invade Britain makes you better than Julius Caesar. But having got control of Britain, you know, it's all like, ah, what are we going to do now? Because the, the prosperous southeast, the, the bit that they, they understood and traded with is one thing, but Britain extends far. You've got the mineral resources, you've got the tin and the lead to the West Country and the gold in Wales. But the further north in England, you get, you get into pasture, you get into dispersed settlements, mountainous terrain, and Rome's no good at dealing with it. You can't generate money from that. So then, as you, you know, they, they happen to start building walls to say everything to the south of ours and everything to the north, we don't really want, you know, you can sort yourselves out. Um, but it, it, it's having invested in Britain, you can't abandon it. You know, all of Claudius's success, I think like Nero after the Boudican revolt, looked to Britain and thought it'd be easy if we just let it go. But you can't because the propaganda significance of Britain is great. To let it go, it will just be disastrous. So you've got to hold on to it um determinedly but it's is a feeling that at certain times britain was a massive drain on resources i mean it did generate tin and lead and gold and agricultural resources but it was it it took a lot of the military to keep it under control i was looking at a, a book about roman Ox, oxfordshire you know when rome was collapsing or when they were withdrawing people from britain people were still building these amazing villas there was like a golden age of villas while rome was burning absolutely i mean the national trust excavations at chedworth recently have shown that there still looks like this mosaic still being laid uh, well into the fifth century you know britain is being cut off by rome in ad 410 but in the 420s 30s 40s people are still putting mosaics down so i think it, it's that area of the Cotswolds uh, around Cirencester, Gloucester, and over towards Oxford, which you've got the big villas, you've got a lot of money, you've got a lot of power. And to some extent, they're kept away from all the big problems uh, of the later Roman world. They're not massively affected by bar barbarian invasions. They're away from the frontier. And whoever's still there is, uh, is still holding on to their wealth and is probably still farming in much the sort of way they, they used to. And, of course, it's interesting, all the stories of sort of uh, Ambrosius, Aurelianus, and Arthur beginning that part of the world. I think that's where you've got your, your late and post-Roman uh, uh, sort of farmers or, or, or uh, sort of wealthy, and they've got their own little private armies to protect those resources. So that's sort of where the origins of those myths really begin, is, is in that part of the world. I like the idea that, um, you know, essentially they were probably calling on areas outside Oxfordshire for military support because we've got Sirencester where there was a fort. But relatively speaking, around the area we're talking about, I don't think there are that many fort sites or they haven't been found yet anywhere. It's almost like they didn't quite need them there. 
it, it, yeah, exactly. I mean, you've got all the shore forts around the south and east of Britain uh, protecting the English Channel and the uh, the North Sea. You've got forts and fortresses in the west of Wales protecting the against the Irish Sea. But there's no real significant military activity in the later Roman world in, in that you know in the in the Cotswolds. So if you're talking about armies, then a lot of it may well be uh, sort of mercenaries or ex units of the military, or you're bringing in Germanic warriors, uh, Saxons, Frisians, and so on, uh, and you're actually paying for them to protect you. So the sort of military activity that we see in late Roman Britain in the Cotswolds is very very. I mean, it mostly comprises spears and in burials and belt buckles. You can see. It's really a, a, a sort of a private security firm that are protecting the landowners in that part of the world. And of course, it was a private security firm that, if, if legend has it, sort of began turning on the Romans or realizing that that that, that, that Britain was ripe for attack. And those, uh, I think it's is it Federati. I... Yes, it is. Yeah, the the, the Federati. I mean, it's um. It's a classic late Roman uh, idea or to fill gaps in the military. The barbarians want to come in and therefore you invite them in, you give them land, but you take their young men to serve in the equivalent of the Roman military. Uh, and that seems to be, so the legend goes, that's what's happening in Britain with a, a number of Germanic groups being settled in Kent to, as a sort of, here's your land, here's your territory, but you will now protect us from um, for, you know, from other other different threats to the north and possibly against against the Irish tribes, uh, but yeah, according to sort of Gildas uh, and Bede and, and the early medieval writers, that's where Saxon England begins in that part of Kent because they overrun their their, their masters and, and take control. It's interesting, isn't it, Miles? That you know, all archaeology. I mean, you and I know that that there's archaeological units at universities under threat. Um, archaeology finds it difficult to get funds and fundamentally there's this um, dichotomy between the need to keep the public interested and therefore supporting archaeology and the need to do a whole range of archaeological work some of which is essential but not exactly thrilling so you need your Staffordshire horde you need your Prittlewell burial, you need your Chedworth mosaics, you even need a visit from Tutankhamun, everybody uh, remembers, to show people that there's this brilliant, exciting subject here, even though it requires a lot of work that, that isn't necessarily, um, and it's a difficult balance to get, and, and a mosaic in the middle of a, a, a villa, you know, where does that stand in that argument? I mean, I think, you know, a mosaic in the middle of a villa, especially one like this, where we've got no idea of what it's going to be like, uh, what's actually there. It hasn't been touched before. None of it's been recorded before. Um, I mean, there's nothing like a floor level. I mean, there's always a problem with um, timber structures is, is often trying to work out where your, your clay level, where your floor is. But in a Roman villa, you've got that mosaic, you've got the floor level. This is where people stood 2000 years ago. And you've got that unique art preserved in there that links you straight back to the Mediterranean world I mean that that's just fantastic nothing I think for me that is the most exciting find that you could get from an archaeological site and you don't feel at all shy embarrassed by colleagues who might say um, you know you're going after the shiny and not the useful no, I think, you know, a mosaic, it, it, it's a unique work of art. And I think leaving it in the ground, it's going to get destroyed. We're going to lose all that information. So for the rest of the villa, I think 
by by and large, you know, you don't necessarily have to excavate that. But a, a trench across the dining room is absolutely vital because if you, you know, to, to lose a, a unique masterpiece from the ancient world, um, I think it would, would just be criminal. They, we have to understand what it is we're preserving. You have to understand, you have to see that mosaic to, to really get that link with the past. Miles, thank you very much. Best wishes to Bournemouth University. We're, we're hoping we'll have a few um, of your colleagues along with us uh, for that, uh, for the first shoot anyway. And, and we'd love you to get you along to visit the site as it gets going. Absolutely, um, I'd love to. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it, I think it's very useful that, that the Time Team family of Romanists, as you know, um, and uh, it's, it's great to have your thoughts and advice at this stage. And we'll be keeping in touch with you. Fantastic. Thanks, okay. Tim. Thanks, Miles. Cheers. We can't do any of this work without you. So please subscribe, back us on Patreon and make sure that Time Team comes back again.